You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis. I do like saying that and I like the fact that we're currently on a one month cycle, which is good. Middle East analysis every month. Now, this is Middle East analysis incorporating MENA 140, because you've definitely heard us talking about MENA 140, allowing 140 seconds for an answer to a question. Now, we're not going to be quite so prescriptive this time. This is going to feel a lot more like a normal Middle East analysis podcast. But what we will do, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, at MENA Golf 140, is we'll chop up the podcast to be a little bit more digestible. And so if you want something short and sharp, you can get it over on Twitter at MENA. Mina Golf 140. And this is a good time to bring in Dr. Harry Hagopian, the indomitable Dr. Harry Hagopian. I'm always looking for adjectives, and that's the one I've chosen for today. How are you, Harry? I like indomitable, uh, James. And uh, yes, I'm fine, as fine as I could be, as uh, normal as we could all be, given all the challenges and the frustrations we're facing every day, primarily with COVID 19. And this will be, of course, our last podcast before Christmas. And you and I have spoken off mic about how how different a Christmas it will be. And some people, of course, will not be celebrating Christmas at Christmas. So I've talked about a few refinements to our podcast and... There are a few notable things, actually, Harry. Today, for instance, it's exactly 10 years since uh, the street seller Mohamed Bouazizi self-immolated in Tunisia, which um, was that sort of spark to start off what was called the Arab Spring. And that notably was when we started our podcast, if you remember. Yes, indeed. I do remember that, James. Uh, We had quite a few episodes uh, in the studio talking about what was then known as the Arab Spring, which indeed started in uh, Tunisia and then expanded in the first wave uh, to include other uh, countries in the Middle East, uh, North Africa region. Interestingly enough, uh, it all started because that uh, poor uh, fruit vendor uh, was so frustrated He had lost all dignity. He couldn't spend on his family that he decided uh, that he wanted to die. And uh, that was a little bit, I think, the theme that ran across all the protest movements across the MENA region, be that in the first wave or the second wave. It is not only a question of uh, protests against the political realities of those countries in the Middle East, North Africa. It is also a question of the value, the dignity of the human being. The human being being viewed as a citizen of the state with rights and responsibilities, a human being that can actually achieve something and be proud of it and the state being proud of that citizen too. So that sense of dignity, that sense of uh, self-confidence ran as a theme across most of the uh, protests. And of course, as was inevitable, because it dragged on Uh, other forces moved in, other people co-opted those uh, protests, 
counter-revolutionary forces, as I like to call them, who did not want any change in their countries because it affected their own uh, power bases, uh, spent enormous amounts of money to quash those protests. At the end of the day, what happened is an awakening of Arab citizenry across this vast region, but not too much being achieved because there was too much pushback by different uh, rulers and people in power across uh, the whole region. And what we see today, unfortunately, is that ebb and flow, that stasis even in the protests. You see them coming up spurting, suddenly happening, and then dying down again, and no visible, real understanding of where we're going, because the roadmap is not really available. Different people have a different understanding of where they want to go, and there is a huge anti-protest movement forces that are making their level best to keep the lid firmly on top of these protests. I mean, I can take examples of many, many countries, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, others as well, where the whole idea is there. People are very conscious of it, but there is still a state of uncertainty, a state of flux as where all this is going to go. Now, some people are despairing, some people who hoped to see a rapid change, the MENA region moving into a different reality, are disappointed, are frustrated. I share that disappointment and frustration at times as an analyst or an observer, but I also am quite conscious that you cannot do something in just a few years. This is a process that might take a little bit longer. But as I've said in the past, once the genie is out of the bottle, it is very difficult to drag it or lure it back into the bottle. So the genie is out somewhere. The labels are changing, but there is something astir. And that is what really gives me hope in the future of the region that has so much potential and resources. The question is, how do you bring material resources and human resources together in order to move forward for the benefit of the many rather than the few? Yeah, and I think as well, Harry, one one quick thing on that very first iconic and uh, dramatic incident with Mohamed Bouazizi. I was thinking about that earlier, actually, and it's not like it was a big, grand politically motivated statement in Tunis. You know, this was, as you rightly said, uh, just despair, not being able to feed one's family. And and that was, was what started the Arab Spring. But whether whether indeed the, the will of the people, self-determinism, we talk about it all the time in the region, don't we? Whether that's actually been realised or even the discussion taken on a notch, I, I feel rather confused as to where we're at with that. But 
everybody is confused, James. You're not the only person as an observer from outside the region who's looking into the region, who dips in and out of the region. You're confused. So are many people living in the region itself because there is a, a confusion. It is not clear exactly how or where all these revolutionary uprisings, all these movements where they will go and how they will morph into something more concrete, more visible and longer lasting. This is the promise, but the promise has not yet been fully materialized. And I think it will take time because it has many enemies, many adversaries who are trying their level best to contain it, to make sure that it doesn't happen, because as I said, it impacts them. But at its base, it's not political, at its base, it's not religious, at its base, it is just human need for some dignity and the ability to feel useful in one's society. I mean, unfortunately, the problem between the MENA and, say, this country, I have been hearing recently about so many people who can't afford in this country, in the UK, in England, let's take one nation, uh, who aren't able to uh, feed their children, so the parents are not eating themselves in order to feed their children. But at- And apparently, Harry, we've had UNICEF stepping in for the first time in history to feed children in the UK. Imagine that. But we still have institutions, we still have a welfare system, be it in the UK, be it across Europe. In most of the Arab world, if you cannot earn your keep, you just go hungry. And then nobody cares when you and when you look at your rulers and you see that they're basically so rich, then this in itself, I think, defines the problem in a very human, but also in a very sociological way. I'd like to move on now, actually, to Morocco and normalization of its relations with Israel. Because, you know, you and I spoke on our last podcast about what a Biden administration might do with regard to policy in the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions. And now we have Morocco as the fourth country, I believe, to have agreed to establish full diplomatic relations with Israel. And I think there are two things here. Firstly, part of that deal recognises Moroccan sovereignty over the entire Western Sahara territory, uh, which is great for Morocco's government, but it kind of ignores a long-standing assertion of independence from the local Sahrawi people, who also claim discrimination, unfair treatment, persecution. That agreement has certain echoes of Israel-Palestine, does it not, Harry? (laughs) Yes. I've uh, read a couple of pieces uh, comparing the fate of the Sahrawis in the Western uh, Sahara with the Palestinians in the West Bank. You know, you're right, James. This is the fourth country that, uh, under a Trump presidency in its dying days, has managed to sort of bring up the issue of normalization. It all started with the United Arab Emirates, then moved on to Bahrain, then segued to Sudan, and now we have Morocco. And they're all different. They're not the same thing. Each one, the quid pro quo for normalization has been different. For instance, in the case of the United Arab Emirates, it is a question of getting F-35 fighters and the price that the Emiratis paid 
for that is to satisfy Israel and Trump by normalizing relations. There is more to that. I'm oversimplifying matters, I know, but this is a podcast. The one with Sudan basically was Trump telling the unelected uh, council that is uh, ruling uh, Sudan for the interim period, you want me to take you off the terrorism list, you normalize with Israel. And the same thing with uh, Morocco. Trump said uh, to the king in Morocco, you want me to recognize that the Western Sahara Desert is Moroccan. In return, you normalize with Israel. And the, and the question that, of course, comes up here is not so much the quid pro quo, because in any conversation that happens, but it is the fact that sometimes I feel that Uh, President Donald J. Trump and his son-in-law Jared Kushner and some of the close advisors are working as ambassadors for Israel rather than for the interests of the United States itself. And at the moment, the fourth such party uh, to follow suit is uh, Morocco in a Western Sahara that, interestingly enough, Uh, When I was doing my law studies many moons ago in Manchester, one of the treatises I wrote then, and we're going back to the 1980s, was on the Western Sahara and the dispute there over who owns it, who has sovereignty over the Western Sahara. Because for the listeners who are interested in this subject, and I, for one, am interested in it, The Western Sahara was a former Spanish colony. This goes back to the late 1880s. That then was annexed by Morocco in two periods, but let's say in 1975 to make things uh, simpler. Since then, since 1975, it's been subject of a long-running territorial uh, dispute with the indigenous Sahrawi people, which were led by the Polisario Front and supported by one of the neighbors, Mauritania, and another neighbor, Algeria. So recently, a 16-year-long insurgency ended with a truce uh, brokered by the United Nations that basically said, we'll have a referendum for independence and we decide who basically runs this patch of land. Reminds me a little bit of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and the South Caucasus, because it had also the same idea of a referendum, etc. But that hasn't taken place yet. And of course, Trump waded in because it suited him. And uh, we are where we are at the moment. But yes, it is interesting. An indigenous Palestinian people ruled by another party, Israel, and in the case of the Western Sahara, the Sahrawis ruled, in their opinion, who are seeking their own self-determination by another power, and in that case, it is Morocco. It's funny, actually, Harry, because I'm also appreciative of, of the history lesson you gave us there a little bit on um, Western Sahara, because when I was in Gran Canaria at the end of October, I was looking east thinking, well, that's going to be bang on the border, probably, between Morocco and Western Sahara. 
And I thought, well, I don't really know much about Western Sahara, its people, relations with its neighbours. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. It's brought, brought me a, le- a level of understanding. The Western Sahara, for people who are interested in it, James, I would suggest, and I'm sure you would agree with me, I would suggest that they look at the map because the map makes it very clear. You've got Morocco, you've got a tiny bit with Algeria, you've got quite a chunk with Mauritania, I'm trying to imagine, and then you've got the Atlantic Ocean. So in a sense, it's quite an interesting uh, land mass that has, if I'm not mistaken, and somebody might uh, say, no, you were mistaken, that's fine. But I think it's about half a million people living across that place. And the only thing that that Western Sahara actually produces is phosphates exports and this thing really came to a head because there is one of the passages called Gergerat which is basically for Morocco to export its products via the Sahara into Mauritania and abroad and there were clashes there between the Polisario Front uh, which basically is seeking the self-determination of the Sahrawis in the desert and the Moroccans. And that, of course, led to the bargain, the barter, the deal, that uh, the transactional deal, it's no more and no less than that, that uh, President Trump managed to do. Now, it's very interesting because I said to you a couple of times already that I wonder whether Trump is doing what's good for the United States, or what's good for Trump, or what's good for Israel. But one thing we should point out, that unlike, say, the United Arab Emirates and uh, Bahrain, even unlike Sudan, the question is not that normalization is in return for something they want, but Morocco has long-running history with uh, Israel, with the Jews, because there have been many, many Moroccan Jews living in Morocco. A lot of those have emigrated over the years to Israel. And interestingly enough, I think roughly one-sixth of the population of uh, Israel, including some ministers and members of parliament in Israel, are of Moroccan origin. So in a sense, there is more there on the people-to-people basis than there is in a place like the United Arab Emirates, where normalization has really run amok, and it has really become ugly. Whereas with Morocco, it's a different kind of uh, normalization. And let me also add here, because In a previous episode, I think it was last month, I also mentioned how uh, Palestine feels enfeebled and weakened and the whole Palestinian ethos is being challenged by this normalization. Interestingly enough, Morocco has been one of the strongest supporters of uh, Palestinians over the years, sometimes even more supportive than uh, the Middle Eastern Arab countries. So there is a lot there that one can throw in the mix. And at the end of the day, politics is never an elegant profession, but sometimes it also becomes a cheap one. Yeah, definitely. So that's a new reality for us in North Africa, at least on this podcast. 
And you did mention the UAE and Bahrain, because we're going to move back towards the Gulf now with our, our next point. The 18th of December is Qatar National Day. So this is quite an interesting topic for us to take on. It's, it's actually also the International Day for Migrants. But as Qatar National Day, Harry, let's talk about the GCC ending the spat in the Gulf, because about a week ago, maybe a bit more than a week ago, it seemed to be quite positive that that three-year spat may well be coming to an end. And certainly Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud said that the nations involved are kind of on board and that an agreement is imminent. So I'll throw that to you. Do you think we might see an end to this spat before the year is out? No, I don't think so. I think the spat has been there for a while and I've spoken at length about that spat. I've written about it and I think it's a very unfair and an unjust spat when three GCC countries out of six, half of them, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, basically delivered an ultimatum to Qatar saying it's our way or the highway. Well, Qatar chose the highway. At the beginning, it was a very ropey, untarmacked highway. But very quickly, Qatar turned it around and managed to establish itself as a sovereign state within the GCC. And in fact, if anything, I think it uh, this spat burnished the Qatari sense of identity far more because they had to cater for themselves and no longer could rely on goods, on support, on whatever. Even the airspace has been closed. So Qatar Airways has to go via Iranian airspace in order to continue uh, working. And that is costing the airline quite a lot of money. But they managed to do it. However, it's been quite clear that what the three boycotting countries did is to cut their nose off to spite their faces. And there's been there have been attempts to try and heal this rift one more. And the key player in this was the Kuwaiti ruler, the late uh, ruler who passed away and his successor as well, plus a little bit, I would say, from Oman, the Sultanate of Oman, and there again there is a new ruler. But also the Americans wanted this to happen, the healing, the reconciliation. Why? Trump wanted it because, again, he wants to bask in the glory of everybody looking at him and saying, wow, this is the miracle man of the United States. But also, on a more concrete and realistic level, it's because the Gulf is very, very important. The Arabian Gulf is very important for America. They're all America's allies. And with tensions running so high between America and Iran, which in itself requires a podcast because I also disagree with that. Uh, I, uh, the Americans, wanted the GCC six countries to work together in case there is further confrontation or the tensions are ramped up with Iran. And so the Americans have been trying to facilitate a mediation, a reconciliation, some sort of a... Uh, compromise, but compromise is fine so long as it does not breach the sovereignty of the uh, of all the countries. And uh, to date, it hasn't happened. But this is not the first time that an attempt has been made. Perhaps this was more serious. Maybe we came closer to an end game. 
it's incremental. It will happen, in my opinion. I'm not confident at all that it can happen by the end of this year. Before Trump leaves on the 20th of January, I'm not sure either. The political realities are not that clear. It will happen, but it should happen in such a way that all six GCC countries retain their own uh, sovereignty. That is very, very uh, important. And at the beginning, basically, the three boycotting countries wanted Qatar to surrender, and that will not happen. There should be equality between those six, no matter the difference in size and in resources. So yes, uh, on Friday, the 18th of December, is Qatar National Day, and there is a lot of hoopla already taking place. There will be lots of celebrations with some social distancing, I suspect. I know the country. I think they will have a wonderful time. And what is interesting is that it's not only the Qatari nationals, but it's also the expatriates and the residents living there, working there. All of them come out to celebrate events such as uh, the National Day. So to answer your question directly, coming back to it at the end, is it going to lead to a reconciliation? Eventually, I think it will, because they don't have any other option, all of them, all six of them. But will it happen by the end of the year or even before Trump uh, is uh, taken out of the White House? I don't know about that either, uh, James. Uh, to make you smile a little bit, I recently learned that Armenia, tiny little Armenia, exports tomatoes to tiny Qatar. And I thought it's very interesting. And I asked some of my friends living and working in Qatar, when you go to the supermarket next, don't look out for Spanish or other tomatoes, <laughs> look for Armenian tomatoes. And to date, Armenian tomatoes have not yet been detected in the supermarkets, in the malls where my friends go shopping. But I just thought I'll add this because to me, it also underlines the very global nature of the world we're living in. Harry, can we finish with Christmas in Bethlehem? Because we've been talking about this. We've been talking about the nature of, of Christmas and how different it is this year. Now, really, it's extremely different in, in Bethlehem, the place of Christ's birth, and quite costly, I'm sure, to the local people as well, because there are, of course, no pilgrims financially crippled at this time of year and it's financially tight anyway especially for those palestinians uh, the palestinian christians and the people of the west bank going to be a very very different christmas give us your thoughts on on christmas in bethlehem it is going to be a very different christmas this year i know that you visited bethlehem and the palestinian territories was it two or three years ago and uh, the religious factor is always there around Christmas, that huge Christmas tree that is in Manger Square, right in the center of the town of Bethlehem, is there now as it has been every year. And it's a tree that is donated by Norway or one of the Scandinavian countries. That is there. The religious ceremonies at the Basilica of the Nativity will still take place. But one thing that will not happen, as you rightly mentioned, is the, no tourism at all. Hotels are empty. Restaurants are not working. The place is 
empty. There is no support system. I mean, again, I compare this time Palestine with the UK. Here in England, we're, we complain, even though we're spoiled by a furlough system that the Chancellor of the Exchequer kicked in, where you get 80% of your salary, even if you're not working because of COVID for a determinate uh, space of time. Whereas there, these people wait for Christmas in order to be able to pay the bills and in order to be able to pay for their families. We go back to uh, Tunisia and the start of the Arab Spring. And in a sense, it's empty. It's deserted. There's nobody in there. It feels spooky, Bethlehem, these days. And I've got good uh, friends in Bethlehem, and on one of my YouTube episodes, I did a wonderful interview with Reverend Dr. Mitri Rahib, the Lutheran, a Lutheran pastor uh, who runs a college in Bethlehem, and he also talks about the desolate nature of Bethlehem today. It's sad, but then it's interesting because the biblical story goes that Mary Joseph were looking for a place and in a hotel. They couldn't find anything, so Mary gave birth in a lowly manger. Reverse that uh, now to the realities of 2020. There are mangers, there are hotels, but there is nobody coming in. So it's sad. Bethlehem today is a very orphaned town, be that from an economic perspective, or be that even from a religious perspective, because COVID makes it such that many people who will have gone to participate in the various uh, nativity or epiphany or theophany services, whether they are Catholics, whether they're Orthodox, whether they're Armenian, they're not going to go. And therefore, Bethlehem loses some of its flavor, and that is sad primarily for the people of Bethlehem, for those hardy Palestinians, Christians and Muslims alike, who live there and hope to make a living, to earn a living. Well, look, Harry, thank you very much for your time. I, I know we've extracted about as much as we can from your voice and your energy levels today, I think. Really good to talk to you, as always. Thanks for your insight. Really enjoyed the conversation about Morocco and Western Sahara, because I learned plenty there. And of course, we'll we'll be back in the new year, hopefully a more positive year with a more positive outlook, I, I do hope. And hopefully I'll see you face to face, Harry, and we might record one of these in the flesh, as they say. Why not? We've done it before, if you recall, and maybe we'll do it again. So all it's suffice it for me to say to all our listeners, irrespective of where they come from and their own uh, cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds. A very, very blessed Christmas to you all. The Feast of the Incarnation, for those of you who believe in the story of the Bible, and also a more hopeful 2021 that we finally managed to extirpate ourselves one way or another from this deadly virus that has really put a damper on all our moods. So given that we're talking about the uh, Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions in this podcast, James, and given that a lot of the people who listen to it are Arabs and Arabic speaking men and women, 
I would also conclude with a Eid Milad Saeed wa Majid lakum jami'an wa kul sana wa intum bikhair. Well, you know what? I couldn't say it myself, but you've obviously done that on both our behalves. <laughs> Thank you very much, Harry. And I have a happy Christmas. I look forward to speaking to you in the new year. Take care, James. <laughs>